Good morning. My name is Tommy Allen and welcome to the teaching ministry of New Hope Presbyterian Church in Kent, Washington. We are glad you are here. Today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 6 as part of our series entitled The Bible and it, the, the title of today's sermon is A New Beginning and really it's about Noah. Now I'd encourage you um, as we're continuing through this series that if you're following along in the template of the Jesus Storybook Bible to read that of course if you want but the text for today uh, I'm only going to be looking at Genesis chapter 6 through 1 through 8 but in fact the whole story of Noah is chapter 6 7 8 and 9 I'd encourage you to read that on your own before we begin I thought we would uh, pray a psalm together and the psalm we're praying together this morning is Psalm 46 and oftentimes what I'd like to do is go into the to revised common lectionary and say I'm preaching on Genesis 6 what psalms are attached to that? That's how I do it when we meet uh, in person. And so this morning, the psalm that's attached to Genesis chapter 6 is Psalm 46. So if you'd like to pray along, feel free to do that. Otherwise, I will just lead us. So let us pray. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The God of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen and amen. Let us pray this morning. Father, I pray now that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would open up this story of Noah to us, that we might hear the whispers of the real Savior in this story, which is ultimately Jesus his cross. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, as I told you, we will be looking at Genesis chapter 6 this morning. And before we read Genesis chapter 6, let me give you a little background. We're not going to do this as we get through the whole Bible. Otherwise, it will take like four hours for one sermon. But now that we're still at the beginning, because today in chapter 6, the story of Noah takes a significant turn or takes a significant leap forward in the narrative of the Bible. If you remember chapter 1 in Genesis basically started with God creating the heavens and the earth and bringing the he, he, created and then he there was the fall and then the promised restoration in other words god created the heavens and the earth and he brought order and then he created adam and eve and he basically gave them put them in the garden and gave them one command which they broke if you want to see last week's uh, sermon feel free to do that um, and they brought curse on all of creation and yet god stepped in in chapter verse 15 of chapter 3 and promised them that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. And that actually, that, that one verse, besides being a promise of redemption, in which Adam hoped, remember he named his wife Eve, the mother of all living, but that also set this historical trajectory 
through the rest of the Bible, that there would be this constant uh, battle, if you will, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the, the serpent. And ultimately that would be Christ and those in Christ and those outside of, of Christ. And the very first time we see that is immediately after God makes that proclamation with the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter four, right? Remember Cain would represent the seed of the serpent and Abel represents the seed of the woman. And if you want to look at the story, it's in chapter four. And when you get there, basically you remember um, Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a worker of the field and Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God and Cain's wasn't. Cain got upset and killed his brother. Cain was a murderer. Now God gives him justice tempered with mercy. He doesn't just smite him and start over. He basically banishes him. And so Cain goes off and he founds his own city and Cain's ancestors found great things like cultural things and arts and technological things like weapons. And the story of Cain culminates with the story of one of his ancestors named Lamech. And Lamech also is a murderer who, who brags about his murder. So that's sort of the seed, the serpent. Now the seed of the woman, What's going to happen there? Because Abel was killed. Well, it starts over in chapter five with a son that they have named Seth. And Seth represents the godly line, the seed of the woman, and he will move forward as well. And so at, at the end of chapter five, Seth's lineage culminates also in a man named Lamech. But instead of being a murderer, Lamech is a godly man and Lamech has a son and he names his son Noah. And the word Noah means rest. In other words, this promise that God was going to bring rest ultimately, um, they, I, I wonder if every parent who had a child wondered and looked at their child and said, maybe he's the one, maybe he's the one, maybe he's the one. Noah, I think Lamech thought, maybe he's the one, maybe he will be the one who will save us. And ultimately, in some sense, he was, but he really pointed to one who would actually save us once and for all. Let me read you the end of chapter five to set up chapter six. It says, when Lamech in verse 28 had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and the painful toil of our hands. In other words, Lamech is saying that this kid, Noah, is going to, to remove the curse from us. That was promised in chapter three. And verse 30, it says, And Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Noah is born into the godly line of this man named Lamech, ultimately coming from Seth. And that brings us to today's text. And I love today's text, I'll be honest with you, because it's one of the sort of weirdest texts in the whole Bible. And it, there's a lot to play with here and a lot to work with here and a lot to speculate about here and a lot's been written about it. So let me just read it to us first and then we will continue. So Genesis chapter six says this, it says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. And verse three, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for his flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of, who were of old, the men of renown. 
And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we're going to look at three things today. Basically, the three things we'll look at are the fact that when we get to this passage, sin multiplies. Sin multiplies because humanity multiplies. And we're going to see sin multiplies, patience ends, and the promise persists. In other words, the promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he doesn't just end it. He doesn't say, gosh, you know, I'm so frustrated with these people. I'm just, they're done. The promise persists, but it persists in an interesting way. So the first thing, sin multiplies. Notice verse one, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So the big question here, the big interpretive question is who are these sons of God, right? So whoever they were, um, man began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to them and the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now there's basically three different options that you can have here to, to interpret who were these sons of God that went into the daughters of man that caused all this trouble. So the first thing is some scholars say that they are the Sethites. In other words, that you have Seth and his descendants or this godly line, and they went into the daughters of man, this ungodly line. In other words, they're intermingling the seed of man and the seed of, or the seed of the woman and the seed of serpent. That's probably not a good option. Most people don't believe that. The other one, depending on your worldview, whether you're secular or supernatural, it basically says that the sons of God was a term that was sometimes used um, for human princes or kings or tyrants. And so what's actually happening here is that on those days, son, the humans were multiplying and the sons of man, human kings or tyrants, were going in and basically abusing poor human, poor women. They were just taking whoever they wanted, um, sort of like medieval style, right? The, the, the first night thing. If a king wanted to take a woman, he'd just take her, and God didn't appreciate that. Now, the problem with that view, I mean, that, that, that could have happened for sure, but the problem with that view, according to the text, is that somehow the union of these sons of God and these women produced Nephilim or giants that's what giants means in hebrew in or nephilim means in hebrew and so the third option is that these sons of god were also uh, or were fallen angels or the apocrypha would call them watchers right that god had sent to earth to to, to rule over some things and that they started going in to the sons of men to the daughters of men and that what they did was they produced this sort of supernatural, natural hybrid called Nephilim, these giants. Notice it says, verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. So just so you don't think I'm crazy, um, the, there's a Presbyterian pastor named James Montgomery Boyce who might be the most conservative Presbyterian pastor who ever lived. He has passed away now. Um, 
But his view of this, if you really look at the text, was basically um, that the fallen angels had united with the daughters of men and were producing these giants. That the human race, the DNA, if you will, of the human race was being corrupted. And Noah, being uncorrupted, um, was chosen to, to save the, the line of hum humanity. So ultimately, there could be a human savior. So regardless of what you believe about that, I mean, honestly, my own personal view, I tend to think it was fallen angels, that it was the watchers. That makes the most sense out of the text. If you're interested in following up more on that, uh, the book of Enoch talks about that. The, the, the pseudepigraphal book of Enoch, the book of Jubilees, all these books are sort of in the Apocrypha, which is not our canon. It's not authoritative, um, but the New Testament does reference them. So it's just interesting to me. The other thing that's interesting is it says, these were the mighty men who are of old, the men of renown. In other words, this might also help make sense as to why every ancient culture, the Greeks and Romans, all these cultures had stories of demigods, right? Like Hercules, who were part God and part human, who could do mighty deeds. I don't want to get wrapped up around the axle about that, but it is fascinating to me. What is important to see here is that whether it was abusive kings or whether it was uh, intermingling of lines or whether it was fallen angels who were coming into the sons of, of the daughters of men and producing these giants um, that God was sort of not excited about it put it lightly in fact God was 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 getting grieved by it notice it says um, in verse 3 it says my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh his days shall be 120 years Right, so first, the God, God's actually sort of being incremental here because we saw that Lamech lived 777 years. Noah had children when he was 500 years, so the, the lifespan of people is pretty long. And God is like, you know what? I'm just cutting it off 120. And it's interesting because I, you, most people these days, when you when you see uh, whether it's Scott and the guys that like, sort of track older folks, you don't see many folks over 100 or 120. But that's another thing. What we see is that regardless of what your view is in this text, that God's patience comes to an end. He's just done with it. That's how bad things have gotten. So notice what it says in verse 5. It says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, think about that. That is the, the, an unbelievably comprehensive uh, statement about the sinfulness of humanity, certainly at that time. Um, that only that every intention of the thoughts of their heart were only evil continuously. And we, we see that all the way in the New Testament too, right? That we're dead in our trespasses and sins, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that all of us are desperately sinful and wicked. Or another way to put it, maybe, is that our sinfulness as human beings, regardless of who you are, goes all the way to the bottom, right? Now, are you as bad as you could be? No, probably not, not if you're listening to this. Um, but that, that doesn't mean you couldn't be. In other words, Tim, Tim Keller has a great line where he, he always says, you're, you're not Hitler or Stalin, but it's not for lack of talent. In, in other words, sinfulness is inherent to who humanity is. And if you begin to, if you understand that, if you embrace that, it begins to help you make sense of the world around you. 
In other words, if you're constantly upset at the world around you, it could be that you have a poor view or a low view or an improper view or, or an inadequate view of the doctrine of sin. How deep it goes and how it affects every single part of your being and how it affects every bit of humanity. So for example, um, one of the reasons we have laws is to restrain wickedness. Right. That's what that's why we have it to keep people from committing crimes. Some people, the only reason they don't commit crimes is because you will get punished for committing crimes. And, and what happens almost every single time laws are removed. We just saw a great example of it. Maybe we're still seeing examples of it around the country. But, you know, we're about 20 or 25 minutes south of Seattle. And remember, they set up the, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone or the Capitol Hill occupied place, chop, whatever it was called, where they basically removed the law. And so into that vacuum, as soon as the law was removed, um, for one thing, sort of warlords took over, if you will, um, that might be an overstatement, but people stepped in who, who wanted to be in charge. But then what else happened after that? Almost immediately, murders started happening, uh, sexual assault, assault started happening, uh, riots started happening, um, and, and stealing and everything else started happening. As soon as the law is removed and the human heart is sort of unfettered, it doesn't typically go to a good place. It typically goes to a bad place. But that helps us make sense of the world. If we realize what's in the human heart, if we realize what's in our heart, we know there's a problem. You know, the, the, the story of the reporter, it was during, I think it was right after World War II, they came up to G.K. Chesterton or wrote him and said, G.K. Chesterton, you know, what, are, what is the root of all the problems in the world? And he wrote back, uh, dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton, right? That if you really understand the doctrine of sin, you understand it's not just outside of you, but it, that it's also inside of you. And that's why, you know, if you think of things, it's amazing to me to watch the news. That's why, uh, I'm going to be honest with you, this isn't a political statement. This is a biblical statement. It's a doctrinal statement. The, the reason, the sin is the reason why socialism will never work. I don't care who pushes it. I don't care how good they make it sound because at the root of socialism is this idea that people are inherently good and they are inherently desirous to share and help other people. And what always happens in socialism um, is people are sinful. And so people become greedy and people be steal and they become black markets and everything. And basically you have animal farm, right? That some pigs are more equal than others and it just doesn't work. Now that's, that's why capitalism works a little bit better because capitalism assumes greed. Capitalism assumes sinfulness on one hand. On the other hand, capitalism is very easily abused. Why? Because our sinful hearts are abusive and greedy. And you know, if you begin to think about sin, ask yourself this, have you ever met a family that wasn't dysfunctional at some level? Seriously. I mean, even if they look good on the outside, there, there is some dysfunction going on, trust me. The, the other thing is, is um, you know, I think people oftentimes are walk around and we become cynical and angry because not only because of the sin in us, but because of being sinned against. Right. I, I feel like I spend my whole day going back and forth between feeling uh, sorry for the fact that I'm a, I have sinned or the fact that people are sinning against me. And it just gets wearisome. Sin is wearisome to live through. Now imagine God's perspective on it. God created everything 
and it was shalom and everyone was holy and happy with him. And then as humanity started to increase, sinfulness started to increase until it got to a point where God couldn't take it anymore. Right. Listen to what it says in verse six. It says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. So God here, notice it didn't say God is angry. I mean, I think I make the mistake of thinking that or saying that about this passage. It didn't say God is angry at sin. It said God was grieved at the sinfulness of mankind and he is sorry that he had made them. And because of that, he's going to blot them out. How do we get our hands around that? Well, but for one, it's by understanding the nature of God. I mean, imagine this, if you're, imagine if you're a father and you have younger children, um, that, that when they disobey or when they, they, they do something bad, um, that your reaction to that is typically both objective and subjective. So for example, imagine um, you tell your children to stop fighting. You're, imagine you have a couple daughters, two or three, and you, you yell at them, you hear them squabbling, you yell in the other room, stop fighting with each other. And so they're quiet for a second, and then 30 seconds later, you hear a blood curdling scream, and you go in there and you see one of the kids has a knot on their head and the other kid is crying. And so you've got to do, objectively, you've got to deal with that find out what happened and maybe say, okay, you have to sit in your room and you have to sit on your bed and you can't play with your toys and you can't, you have to discipline them. That's the objective part of that experience. But the subjective part of that experience is what I feel, right? I might feel angry. I might feel disappointed. I might feel sad. But the fact is because I'm a father, I not only have to deal with the situation, but I have my own feelings as well. And that's how I think we can understand what God is doing in this text. That we tend to think of God as if he was some cosmic scorekeeper. And in fact, he's not. God is a father, a loving father, who objectively has to deal with sin. Subjectively, it grieves him and makes him feel bad. In other words, God has emotions just like we have. I mean, it's oftentimes, you know, as a pastor, oftentimes you hear someone say, I'm angry at God or, or I'm disappointed in God. I, I understand that. And I never say this back personally, but I'll say it right now because no one's here, right? Um, if you're walking around completely and constantly disappointed with God, ask yourself this, is it appropriate or maybe probable that he is also disappointed in you? In other words, that God has expectations of us. God created us for a purpose and we're not living up to that purpose and we're not living into to what he desires for us. He could be disappointed. Here in this story of Noah, it's on a massive scale. And God declares because of this, he is going to, he's going to have justice, right? He's going to show justice to these people. Verse six or verse seven, he, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the lamb man and animals, creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. God declares that he is going to show justice. He's going to give people what they deserve and what they have chosen. 
Now it's interesting. This is just a side note here. People argue about whether the flood was a local flood that God sent or whether it was a, a, a global flood. And either way, there no doubt was a flood. In fact, uh, I, I read a lot of sort of secular uh, geology books and things like that. And there a lot of geologists are coming to, to understand that maybe about 12,000 years ago, there was actually a global flood, so a, a global cataclysm. So in, in other words, every culture in the world has some kind of flood myth. Even the Aborigines have a flood myth. So either there was a local flood and they all went out from there, or there was a big flood and people around the world experienced it. And we know that Noah and his family survived with this seed of the woman line and maybe some other people survived, who knows? But the fact is it's a big deal and no doubt some version of the flood actually happened. So God, when God talks about showing justice here through the flood, I think it's serious. And so what's interesting is God decides he's going to show justice. He says, I'm going to blot man off the face of the earth whom I have created. And then he does something completely and utterly unfair. He shows grace. In, in, in other words, if we all deserve justice, if we all deserve punishment for our sin, um, if we all deserve uh, alienation rather than reconciliation, then it is unfair for God to show us grace. I'm happy that he shows us, but, it, but if we're just talking about what's fair and what's not fair, grace, by very definition, is unfair. It's unmerited, but that's what you see in this story of Noah. If you look at verse 8, so after God says he's going to blot man off the face of the earth, he says, for I'm sorry that I have made him. In verse 8, he says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Now, you've, if you hear me, if you've listened to me often, if you go to our church, I often say that the word but is one of the most important words in the whole Bible, right? God says, I'm going to blot man off the face of the earth whom I've created, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's important to grasp on a couple of levels. One is that Noah was just as sinful as everyone else. I mean, maybe not to the extent, maybe he wasn't out committing super crimes and murders, but in his heart, it was in there. Noah inherited Adam's curse. Noah inherit, inherited a sinful nature, just like everyone else. And the reason Noah was in relationship with God the way he is was because God decided to show him grace and not the other way around. It, in, in other words, that Noah wasn't shown grace because he was a good man. Noah was a good or righteous man because he was shown grace. You see, we oftentimes, we, we read children's Bibles, not the Jesus Storybook Bible, by the way, but when you read them, oftentimes it'll say that God saved Noah because he was good, and that's just not true. God showed favor to Noah, and as a result of God's favor, then Noah lived into that favor and lived as a good man. Now, what did God call Noah to do? He called him to build an ark. Let me read that to you. It says in verse 11, of chapter six. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 14, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood and make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. 
And he's verse 18, he says, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So what's happening here is God has just said he's going to show, no, he shows favor to Noah. He tells him, I want you to build an ark. And, you know, we, it, we can have fun with this and say, gosh, you know, it must have seemed really crazy for Noah to be told to build an ark in the middle of the desert. And maybe it was. And maybe people thought he was crazy. Maybe people watched him. Who knows what happened? But Noah is building this ark. And it's not the, the you think about it, building an ark in the middle of the desert and saying, this is the way to your salvation is no more crazy than putting a cross in a, in a dump and saying, see that out of work carpenter that we have just crucified? That is the way of your salvation. You see, the ark itself is a big whisper of the gospel. It's a big whisper of the person and work of Jesus. You see, to, to the ark was both a, a sign of judgment and it was a sign of salvation. It, to, to, let's say you're standing outside the ark and you're watching this thing. To look at the ark, you either, you either believed that God was sending judgment and you could get on the ark or not. If you didn't get on the ark, then, then the ark was a sign of judgment to you, especially when it started raining and the door was shut. On the other hand, if you entered, the ark was a sign of salvation to you. In the same way, the cross of Jesus is either a sign of judgment or it's a sign of salvation. You look at the cross and, and you see on there this man crucified and you hear the message that this crucifixion was for you, that your, he is bearing your sins. The wrath of God is being poured out upon you. You see, in Noah's time, God decided to, to send judgment upon all of mankind and rescue one. By the time you get to Jesus, he is going to rescue all mankind by showing his wrath to one, Jesus. And so in that sense, the, the cross becomes to you and me, it's either a sign of judgment or it's a sign of salvation. What is it to you when you look at the cross? Have you dealt with it? Do you look at the cross and you say, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I'd rather face God on my own judgment. And maybe you think that you can withstand the judgment of God. I don't think so, but you can try or the cross. By grace, I'm going to, to, to ride the cross, if you will, through the waters of judgment. And in fact, that's what First Peter says. First Peter likens baptism to Noah's flood, where you go into the water of baptism, but you come out unscathed because of the cross. That is the cross of Jesus that saves us from the judgment of God in the same way the ark saved Noah and his family from the judgment of God. And how does that, what does that have to do with anything else in the story that we're looking at? So on one hand, God, God brings Noah's family through judgment by way of this ark in the same way Jesus brings us through judgment by way of his cross. And God also made a promise to Noah that he would finish the job and that he would never judge men in that way again. And he did it. I, I would, I'd be remiss, right? Even though I'm looking at these first eight verses, if I didn't mention the rainbow at the end of the story of Noah, remember at the end of the, the story of Noah, what happens is God says, I will come and I will set my bow in the clouds that there's this big rainbow. And by which it's a sign of this promise that he makes that he's not going to destroy the earth by, by flood anymore. And what's interesting about that 
is we tend to think of the rainbow and say, oh, that's cute. And if you ever go to, to children's ministry spaces or ubiquitous around every church, there's rainbows and there's Noah's Ark and there's little animals. But the, the bow in that text is the, is the language of a war bow. You see, the chosen weapon of kings in the ancient Near East would have been the bow or the spear and lightning would be their arrows. And God takes the bow and he says, no, I'm going to hang my bow in the clouds for you. Now, what's the significance of that? Because when you look at the rainbow, which way is it pointing? It's pointing, it's pointing toward God. It's not pointing toward us. That the, the God's chosen weapon, if you will, is pointing to his own heart, not to ours. Let me read to you the end of the Jesus Storybook Bible, because I thought they did a good job of capturing the essence of what the rainbow was all about. I'll close with this. It says, at last the boat landed quite suddenly on top of a great mountain. As soon as it was safe, God said, out you come. And so they did, everyone skipping and dancing onto dry land. In the ESV, Noah gets drunk ASAP. But let's continue. The first thing Noah did was to thank God for rescuing them, then just as he had promised. And the first thing God did was make another promise. I won't ever destroy the world again. And like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrow at the end of a great battle, God said, See, I have hung up my bow in the clouds, and there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again, but God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why before beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan, a plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it, a plan to one day send his own son, the rescuer. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray now that as we consider this story of Noah, in some ways we, we literally just scratch the surface of it, but I pray we have the essence of it. And the essence of it is that we are desperately wicked and beyond cure. And yet by your grace, salvation is possible through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would work that into the heart of every person who hears this. If they're a believer, I pray that you would confirm them. And if they do not yet believe, I pray that you would at least spark their conscience. And so we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Well, at this point, typically, if we were having church, we would sing the doxology and we would take an offering. So if you are interested in, in giving to the ministry of New Hope Presbyterian Church or a member or a frequent attender, please do that. You can do that. Uh, the information is given to you in the comments below. And I thought I would finish today with a profession of faith, which we almost always do from the Heidelberg Catechism. And the profession of faith from the Heidelberg Catechism today, I'm using question number 12. And that question asks this question, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? Answer, God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of his justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or another. And you know who that person is, right? Either us or by Jesus himself.
I pray that you would consider that this week. Thank you for tuning in. I look forward to seeing you again. I look forward to seeing you someday in person even. And so let me send you with these words saying, the Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is a mighty and victorious warrior. The Lord your God shouts over you with great shouts of joy. Go in the knowledge of his peace. Amen and amen.